0: The Bain Free Radio
1: Hour. On the podcast, orbital breakups of Brangelina proportions, hardcovers, Eck hat tricks, rays made while the sun shines, and hot licks on the cold fiddle of
2: space-time. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now.
1: Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel.
2: And I'm Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio.
1: This time we have part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and David Carrico. They discuss The Span of Empire, which is the new entry in the science fiction Jow Empire series, which was begun by Eric Flint and Katie Wentworth, and is now continued by Eric Flint and David Carrico.
2: And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. All coming up. Now, here's the news. October, hardcovers
1: are quivering at the starting gate, ready to leap forth in a burst of entertainment and wonder.
2: Debuting next Tuesday is Alliance of Shadows by Larry Korea and Mike Coopery. This is book three and the finale of Larry and Mike's military adventure, crazy conspiracy, bang-up, shoot-out, dead-six series, and it is the sequel to Swords of Exodus. In the book, Europe has spiraled into chaos. In the midst of the murderous disorder, mercenaries Michael Valentine and Hector Lorenzo are in Europe trying to track down the evil and highly dangerous Caterina Montalban. She has initiated a mysterious plot to do away with those who stand between her and ultimate power. The team is on their own, with few friends, few resources, and racing against the clock. Both Valentine and Lorenzo will have to risk some dangerous alliances if they are to succeed. Shadowy Alliances, too, alluding to the title. What else is there? Also out is Castaway Odyssey by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spore. The Boundary series continues with this sequel to Castaway Planet. We meet a different cast of characters this time. They are survivors of a terrible accident on an outward-bound starship and are caught out in interstellar space in a malfunctioning lifeboat. How to survive. With a little ingenuity and a whole lot of gumption.
1: Alliance of Shadows by Larry Correa and Mike Coopery, and Castaway Odyssey by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spore, are both about to be available next week, and maybe even as you are listening to this at Booksellers Everywhere.
2: This is part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and David Carrico discussing their collaboration, The Span of Empire. Part one is available on the previous podcast.
1: I want to welcome Eric Flint and David Carrico to the podcast. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hi. Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction with over three million books in print. He's the author-creator of the New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series. With David Drake, he's written six popular novels in the Belisarius Alternative Roman History Series. Uh, that's a big Bane series. And with David Weber, collaborated on 1633 and 1634, the Baltic War. He's the author or co-author of many more books in the series as well. Eric was a labor union activist for many w- years as well, which informs some of his fiction, including, I think, a few, few things in The Span of Empire, which we'll maybe get to. David Carrico claims his writing career literally began with a cliché. He finished reading a particularly bad novel, threw it across the room, and declared, I can write better than that. It took a while, but eventually he began selling stories, many of them set in the 1632 universe and published in Grantville Gazette. He's the author with Eric Flint of 1636, The Devil's Opera, and now at booksellers everywhere, is The Span of Empire. This is the third novel in the Jow Empire series previously co authored by Eric Flint and K D. Wentworth. Well, let's talk about the Jowl some more maybe. Um especially uh Danet Crenu Avatera. Um she is uh, she's a really good uh fighting ship captain. How to tell us a, I guess there's a lot to talk about with the Jowl. There's the um the body posturing which is really cool. Um and there's the way that spaceship battle it, battle takes place as well, which is kind of submarine like um can you can you all go into some of that with the
0: um, well, most of the there actually it is possible to have battles in open space we just I, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've never had one yet. Wait a minute, no,
3: wait. We do in Span of Empire, right?
0: Um, Yeah,
3: we we hadn't had one in the first two books. In the first two books... Right, yeah, 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 yeah. the, The big thing about space battles in this series is they're almost all meeting engagements. There's nothing along the line of, well, we know the enemy is across the other, the other hill, so we're going to sit here and wait for them and wait for them to come to us and we'll have a battle. It's more along the line of you turn the corner and there they are. That's kind of the way all of the battles, in, with the exception of the attack on Earth, that's kind of the way all of the battles in the series have been. Yeah.
1: yeah. And because of the uh, so- the way that Faster Than Light Travel works, you you end up in a star inside of a star when you
0: right yeah i i decided to do that from the very beginning because i thought it would be kind of neat um because to the best of my knowledge and i'm i'm sure somebody's done it science by now in science fiction but i didn't uh, other than than David Brent's Sun Diver, and that was a very different kind of story. I couldn't think of anyone who'd really done much where you know where spacecraft have to actually operate inside a star, not very far down inside a star, but still inside a star. So I thought that'd be kind of fun, and I designed it so that that was how uh, interstellar travel worked, um, basically because. Um, yeah. the main reason you need the star is actually positioning across huge distances and trying to target anything else is just not real feasible. So that's why the spacecraft sort of materialize inside the photosphere of a star. But, um, that sets the parameters for a lot of the battles because, uh, it means number one, you don't know what you're going to walk into. Um, because you can't really see into a star. So if there is already an enemy in there, you're not going to know it until they, they emerge from the star. So it also means that the, the specific nature of the combat inside the star, which we depicted in, in the very first book, Course of Empire, is, is interesting. It means you're using kinetic weapons instead of uh, um, beam weapons. You know, there's a lot of things that make it different. Um and so that's what's accounted for a lot of the way it's been up until now. The thing with, about Donat as a character what this goes back to the first two books. Um what's presented in Course of Empire is that there are the the, the Zhao are organized in you know, what are called Koshan, which are roughly equivalent, analogous to human clans, roughly. And the two greatest of them are the Pluthrac uh, and the Narvo. And very, very, very loosely, the two of them are analogous to Athens and Sparta, among the Greeks. And that's a very loose analogy, You I don't want to take it too far. But the Pluthrac are highly sophisticated, subtle... Uh, tend to operate politically wherever possible uh, the narvo are are the great warrior clan of the uh, of the Jow, and the um semi insane ruler of earth Jow ruler of earth in the first book o book was a narvo so the attitude of humans towards that particular clan is very hostile by the end of that book. What the Narvo do in the sequel is they they, they basically donate, if you want to call it that way, um uh, Donet to this new taif it's called, which is this new political entity that's emerged on earth. It's sort of a combined human Jao political structure. And, and Donat agrees to to relinquish her NARVO membership and become, you know, join this taif. And she's not, she has her reservations about it, let's put it that way, but she really is one of the top military um, figures. I mean, she, I mean that's what it is supposed to come through in the books is that.
1: Um, she's the Nelson of the Jow.
0: She's a real hell on wheels in a battle. Yeah, right. I mean, and yeah. and that does come across in the books. And so you know, it's like, okay, you have to always be reminded that whatever grudges or animosities you have toward the Narva, they are also the Great Clan that more than any other has kept the Jowl protected from the echo uh, and they will now extend and that will be true
3: for humans too now. so that was that was where the idea for her came yeah and, and the the analogy would be kind of like uh, after the American Revolution the British decided to give Lord Nelson to the American Navy
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah except yeah, although it would be a young Lord Nelson, not yeah. not the Lord yeah. Nelson of Trafalgar. I mean, because she's yeah. not, you know, she's sort of, she's on a level colonel, not you know. Um, yeah. But yeah. yeah, that is a good analogy.
1: Well, but except Nelson really hated Americans.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, well, <laughs> that's why he fought it. Well, um, tell us a little bit more about the jowl with the 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 language um and and maybe bring in the leish and and how the various um communication processes um happen there and they're kind of based on the basic personality because the jow what's really one of the funny things was that they are not as bureaucratic as humans which was kind of cool um <laughs> and they never beat about the bush and they really can't lie um and those postures um what are those postures and
0: You know, the the postures were entirely. Um, that was entirely Kathy's contribution in the series. I, I, but the thought had never occurred to me until she handed over the first draft to me, and she had it through there. And I, when I read, it, I thought, "This is brilliant." Um,
3: well, the the reason but, why the reason why though would be the the jow are modeled. You told me they were modeled after uh, seals. And when you look at a seal, uh, the the face of a seal doesn't give you nearly the mobility that a human face does. That's true. So the, That's true. The, the ability to look at the visage of a seal and detect anything about what's going on inside the seal's mind, you know, unless they're snarling at you, you're not going to be able to tell much. So the, the body language, the, the other parts of the body would be where you would see the, the equivalent of a smile or the equivalent of a, a quizzical expression, or the equivalent of a, a sneer. It would be portrayed within the, uh, the posture, you know, kind of like you know, with a dog. If a dog tucks his tail in, that tells you one thing, versus if the tail is wagging, that tells you something else. You're seeing that in the posture of the body of the dog, not in the face of the dog. Same thing with with the jowl. So, you know, know, calling it brilliant was absolutely correct. Kathy's uh, conception and creation there was absolutely brilliant, and her execution of it in the first two books was likewise brilliant.
1: Because they, um, I mean, they're not simple emotions and and expressions that are, I mean, they're pretty complex. And I, as I was reading, I found myself trying to assume those postures to imagine what it would be like to uh, for Caitlin to try to do it, which was not very successful on my part. <laughs> no, no, you,
0: you can't do it. <laughs> I tried myself once, and it's like, no, no, no
1: but um in the liech um lim is uh one of the Lash characters um she is um up from the ghetto in a way right
0: yeah yeah mm-hmm.
1: and they are the translators of this milieu
0: mm-hmm.
1: why are they so good at it
0: well they, i don't know if we were ever I can't remember if it's ever stated explicitly. I think it was in Crucible Vampire*, Empire. But the underlying presumption is that there's something about the leish where they retain their whole lives, what human beings do have for about the first four to five years of our lives, where, where young children just imprint languages really easily. And then when you get to be about five years old, it gets to be much harder. Uh, I don't know that's just a fact. I don't know there's various theories about why it's true. I don't know that it's ever been settled one way or the other why it's true, but that that is kind of the nature of human ability to learn language and the and the prince, the premise is that the lace never lose that so just like with humans, you can kind of just immerse them they can just sit there and listen to a language, which is what kids do and after a while they'll understand it and it's really kind of mysterious how they do it but they do it just like it's all mysterious how kids do it but they do it um i david I, I think we do make that explicit at one point
3: but am i right or wrong I, I just can't remember yeah i i think that shows i think that's actually explained somewhere in crucible yeah um, that's uh, my memory.
1: I think it's, uh well actually yeah, it's, I just, it's actually in in the span i just read it today (laughs) pretty much what you just said (laughs) so you at least bring it back up in there (laughs) all right um the jow are also created by um the ekat um and this is one of the reasons they have purpose that they were created for in a in a sort of nasty way but that this is One of the reasons they lack something that humans have, the great human quality that we hear again and again. What is that word? Um, There's a particular Jow word for it, which is curiosity. Yeah,
0: all not, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which is the uh, the ability to imagine something that doesn't exist, loosely translated. Uh, Humans are innovative in a way in which the Jow... Don't seem to be, and it's so. With the Jow, it's so. It's such a pronounced feature of them this resistance to innovating that that it's it's the assumption is that it's hardwired into them, and probably by the ecot. You got to remember the Jow were, were an uplifted species. They were they were uh, they were actually developed as intelligent species by the Ekot, Uh by that one ecot uh, faction that. That believes in using slave species. So, to some degree, the Jow are actually an artificial species, and it's hard to explain the lack of Olnot, except for that because it's. I think this is David again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is something that that uh, Preceptor Bond explains to Professor uh, Kinsey at the end of the first book, *Course of Empire* where he has his final meeting with him, where, you know, that, that it's it's hard to explain why the Jow are so essentially incurious if you don't assume that they're somehow hardwired not to be, because, you know, it is, after all, not that mysterious a trait. Uh, but whatever the cause of it is, they are quite different from humans in that respect. Um, they tend to be much more literal. It's also, you know, the thing you you know you were talking about earlier, Tony. Yeah, they, they tend not to be bureaucratic, you know. Um, uh, um, there's a, there's a, a a little scene in the first book, of course, Empire, I always found amusing because uh, I wrote it, <laughs> where uh, uh, the, the I.L. commands Gabe Tully, who's now in his service, to go do something. And you know he's got to go somewhere and round up a whole bunch of people. And, and Gabe says, "Well, how am I supposed to do that?" And 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 Yao, the the uh, the Fracta, which is the, the sort of sidekick, looks at him. He says, "How is this difficult? You order people to do it, and you go about it, you know." <laughs> and it's it's very much a Jow way of looking at things. It's very straightforward. It's. Uh, uh, they don't fuss over rules and regulations. They, they, for instance, do not have anything remotely like inter-service rivalry. They think the human tradition of inter-service rivalry is borders on insanity. Um, but on the other side, they do tend to be quite
3: unimaginative. Uh, it, it, it's described in one of the passages of Span of Empire that they have a bad case of cultural paralysis. It's their their culture hasn't changed as far back as humans have been able to research. They're the same today as they were, or if they change, it's extremely slowly.
1: Yeah, and the the Laish are also a, a more they they've been running from the Ecot since about Roman Empire time, right? in in our time frame. Yeah. So these are older species and yet uh, maybe they they need the youthfulness of humanity or something like that. There has to be a reason they need us, cuz they carry us along. Yeah. Um one other species that was ki- that was cool. Um I was wondering if one of y'all had a thing for labrador retrievers. Um <laughs> 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 because with the trike, the trike um
3: Tri-key.
1: the trikey they were they were neat um kind of a group mind but not really the i guess pack-like mentality right that was
3: kind i'm gonna
0: of, let david answer that one because the trikey were his creation
3: no actually the trikey were kathy's creation
0: Oh, were they? oh that's right yeah they were. yeah
3: yeah 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 uh yeah what I got in the way of work files uh, after Eric came back to me and said, are you you know, ag- still agreeable to trying to finish this? What I got in the way of work files, uh, Kathy had only gotten about four chapters done, and Eric had one chapter that he'd added. But in that four chapters, Kathy had created the trikey and actually had two or three scenes with them. And they were... Um, kind of like a labrador um or you know that that kind of bumbling puppy uh pay attention to me uh, you love me la 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 kind of attitude that you see in, in lab in lab puppies sometimes uh that was what she had instilled in them and uh so I carried that forward. I mean, that was that was part of what she had done was in creating them, and it and it was so it was kind of neat to work with uh, from that standpoint. Uh, but that that was one of the last things that Kathy did was she created the trikey uh, and uh, you know what? When when I had to edit the the original passages. To to uh, bring them up to final draft quality, um, I tried very hard to maintain as much as possible of what w- of what Kathy wrote because I knew this was the last new fiction she w- she had written, and uh, I was able to preserve almost everything in one form or another. And one of the things we preserved was the trike.
1: Well, they're cool. There's a story that's connected to. Span of Empire that we have on the website and that will be in that um, Bane Free Short Story uh, ebook collection 2016. Um, what's the title of that again, David? You wrote it.
3: Um, the title is Bringer of Fire. And what it is, is it's kind of the backstory of one of the secondary characters that showed up in Span of Empire, um, a, a Janelle lieutenant named uh, Vikram Banerjee who's from India, and it's kind of the backstory on how somebody who really hated the Jiao uh, discovers that there's more to the Jiao than he ever realized, and that there are a lot worse things that could have happened to Earth than being conquered by the Jiao, and how that kind of changes his world view, his universe view it's it's not a very long story and it doesn't take very occupy a very long period of time in the universe but it it kind of sets up why we meet end up meeting vikram in span of empire right.
1: he's a very cool and winning character in the book as well and he's he's kind of the Eckhart expert
3: he's uh, he's becoming the Eckhart expert that's part of and, and we see the beginning of that in Bringer of Fire, that he is, uh, he is, is drawn to the Ecot in a very, you know, you know, the typical horribly fascinated way. You know the the Eckhart are so bad, but I I still want to know everything there is to know about them. Kind of, of way, we see the beginning of that in Bringer of Fire, and it's 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 full blown, and it's actually part of his job duties in uh, as a Janau officer in uh, span of empire.
1: To talk about the book more is kind of difficult because there's a big twist in the book that we don't want to reveal um but uh, it's not just all of these uh various uh aliens and humans fighting the Eckhart. there's there's even more that that will be revealed um in the book so and it's left in a way that the series could continue will the series continue what might be the next uh human jow everybody else alliance uh project here other than running from the Eckhart and trying to kill him. Yeah, yeah. That's...
0: David and I will have to discuss it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, that, that, uh, look, yeah, so you have to it. understand there's a practical reality here that, that uh first two books came out quite a while ago, and then there was, I think, a five-year gap, I believe, <coughs> between... The appearance of Crucible of Empire, and span of Empire, and that was, of course, because of Kathy's unexpected death. So I did not raise with our publisher, Tony Weisskopf, doing another book beyond this. Not that I precluded it, but I just didn't raise it because, you know, she I knew she would want to see how the book sold. So um, assuming sales are good, or good enough at least, uh, there will certainly be a fourth book in the series. As to where it will go, well, I think there's sort of clearly an, an overriding arch to the to the story, um, which is that you know <laughs> someday somebody has to do something about these ecot. I mean, <laughs> they're really a bummer, <laughs> and so you know. Uh, um, you know, that would be the direction in which the the story would continue to unfold. Right. Exactly how uh, I don't know. Uh, I have some ideas. I'm sure David has some too. Uh, but we haven't actually talked about it. Uh, so. Um,
1: well, there's a lot of cool new stuff that could go into that story as well, and some oh, yeah, yeah. some neat ideas um, uh, that occur in the uh, in the final part of um, the span of empire. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about that. So, um, well, the book is The Span of Empire by Eric Flint and David Carrico. It's now out at Booksellers Everywhere. Uh, Eric and David, thank you very much for being with us and talking about it.
0: Sure. Thank you for inviting us.
1: Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's the sea without a shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand, and to take the blows directed at him, than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyber-spy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry... Of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore.
4: Chapter 11 Brotherhood on Corsera Adele stood beside Daniel while the main hatch began to squeal open. Most of the kaisha's crew was in front of them in the hold, which was fine with her. She felt no need to be the first of the freighter's personnel to set foot on Corsera. Steam and a nose-wrinkling whiff of ozone swirled in through the crack. There was a shriek and clang. The hatch had jammed. Only a hand's breadth of air was visible between the upper edge and the combing. Hold one, called Corey over the hatch speakers. I'll back it. Keep clear, said Wochens, as her arm swept one of the riggers a step sideways. Evans swung a bronze mallet with an ease that belied its 20-pound weight, striking not the jammed piston, but rather the plating to which the unit was bolted. The deck jumped under Adele's soft-soled boots. Try it now, Wuchin shouted through the open bridge hatch. The piston shuddered, then resumed pushing the hatch downward, but more smoothly than before it had jammed. The bosun had clearly moved the rigor aside because she knew that Evans wouldn't think to be sure no one was behind him when he brought the mallet around in a roundhouse swing. The squat technician was impressively strong, but Adele knew from previous voyages that he had the intellectual capacity of an eggplant. Daniel, his lips close to Adele's ears, said, How do you think Hale is working out? Adele pursed her lips. She let her eyes shift beyond Daniel to where Vessi and Hale stood beside the cargo. Stacks of crated carbines. She hasn't called herself to my attention, Adele said. I suppose that's a recommendation. She's behaved as a member of the Sissy's crew is expected to behave. Doing her job well and not requiring unusual notice. Though it's the Kaisha's crew now, I suppose. Adele pursed her lips again. I met Hale in the Navy House archives before you and I discussed this mission, she said. I'm not sure she connects me with the scholar she chanced into in Zenos. Um, said Daniel, nodding. His eyes were on the hatch as it tilted downward, pulled by the hydraulic piston. Adele felt cold with embarrassment. A different person would have blushed. Daniel, she said. Hale implied that she and Blantyre had been rivals at the Academy. She was looking for the logs of the Princess Cécile as a private vessel, for lessons as to how Blantyre's career had progressed so much faster than her own. Through Corey, I suggested that she might wish to apply for a crew position on the Kaisha. I apologize for interfering with the crewing of the ship. I should have told you. It doesn't appear to me that you interfered, Daniel said. He grinned at her. And Hale seems to be working out very well. She's intelligent and not afraid to work he coughed into his hand and added, I'm not sure Hale did recognize you in different clothing and circumstances, but she certainly recognized Tovera, which was a sufficient clue. She's quite intelligent, as I said. The hatch, now boarding ramp, clanged onto the outrigger. Some ports had extendable walkways, which could be connected to the boarding bridge, but here at Brotherhood there was only the concrete levee surrounding the harbor. Iron ladders reached from the top of the wall down below the surface to accommodate changes in the water level. Let's go, wo said. She and four riggers trotted down the ramp, carrying the freighter's own extender. At the bottom, they began expanding the first ten-foot section by attaching the air pump and turning a valve. Steam, ozone, and stench entered the compartment. Ships in port ordinarily voided their wastes into the slip in which they floated. Their thrusters incinerated anything organic, including native algae or its equivalent. Spacers got used to the smell. Human beings had an amazing ability to get used to things, as Adele had learned in slums even before she joined the RCN. The swatch of brotherhood which Adele could see through the hatchway was as familiar to her as the smell. They were on the city side, but warehouses and shops catering to spacers were built all around the pool. A concrete roadway circled the top of the levee, though that was above eye level from the hold. What Adele could see was the heavy-duty crane trundling slowly around the pool on double overhead tracks, hauling behind it a flat car with three heavy pieces of equipment. She thought they were generators. The top and bottom plates of the extender had swelled open. The riggers didn't wait for it to fill completely before shoving it into the water attached to the second section, which they began to inflate in turn. They had brought four sections, but two sufficed to reach the nearest ladder up the levee wall. The team locked the second firmly to the ramp while the pump charged it. I knew the town was on a hill, Daniel said, nodding toward the view. I didn't expect the peak to be so high, though. The top must be 100 feet above the water. 121 feet at average river stage, Adele said. Her data unit was in her hand, but she didn't need to check it. Brotherhood is built on a volcanic intrusion, not a mud bank. The river changed course from the east side to the west side of the plug, but it remained in the same channel farther downstream. Wochan strode across the extender, riding the springy surface with the ease of experience, and lashed the far end to the ladder. We're set, Six, she called, waving the wrench in her right hand. The Liberty Party is released, Daniel said. Remember, spacers, it's daylight only. The crew shouted a variety of things, including, Adele noted, up Cinnabar. That wasn't a problem since no one, official or otherwise, was waiting on the levee to greet the Kaisha's arrival. Eight of the waiting spacers trotted down the ramp and extender. Half of each watch, Daniel said to Adele. It would look odd if a tramp captain didn't give the crew liberty on landing. Of course, most tramps would have been much longer on the voyage than we were. They're not wearing liberty suits, Adele noted. The spacers were wearing ordinary slops, though cleaner and newer than normal duty garb on board. She had expected them to be in RCN utilities, decorated with patches and ribbons to make them stand out among those they met on the ground. While we're not exactly trying to keep our identity secret here, Daniel said dryly, I didn't think that RCN battle ribbons and patches for RCN warships were really required as a way to introduce ourselves. Wochens and her team were walking up the ramp, Barnes looked back over his shoulder as if regretful that he was still on duty. Remaining in the hold with Adele were Rickard, Cleveland, and Tovera, Vessi and Hale, who were in charge of replenishing the Kaisa's supplies, and Hogg and Daniel. Hogg opened the arms locker welded to the bulkhead beside the bridge hatch. He took out a submachine gun and a pair of holstered service pistols, much heavier than the little weapon in Adele's pocket. Master, he said, looking at Daniel, you want something? Um, said Daniel, the wrong image for talking to the port authorities, I think. I'll trust to your protection, Hogg. That's what I figured, Hogg said. Vessie, and you, Hale, take these. Unarmed women are chum in the water in a place like this, right, Master Cleveland? It should be all right in daylight, Cleveland said. "Ah, uh, I have my pin. He touched the pearly white trefoil he'd attached to his collar. Militia members don't have trouble, he added. Lady Mundy and her servant will be with me. I appreciate your concern, Master Cleveland, Tovera said. Someone who didn't know her might think she meant it. I feel safe knowing that you'll protect me. Well, it's not me, Cleveland said, taking the thanks at face value. It's the pin. We transformationists aren't the largest faction on Coursera, but we're respected. Vessie took a pistol and cinched the belt around her waist. As if feeling the question in Adele's gaze, she looked up and said, I've been practicing, ma'am. I'm not very good. I don't think I'll ever be good, but I know how to shoot it. I doubt it will be necessary, Adele said in a neutral tone. In fact, Adele suspected that Vessie's intellectual coolness would make her extremely effective in a gunfight, where most participants closed their eyes and jerked off shots as quickly as they could. Her only doubt was whether Vessie could bring herself to pull the trigger, even if it were a choice between that and certain death. If you don't mind, Hale said, I can't hit anything with a handgun. Take it anyway, Hogg growled, bouncing the remaining pistol in his palm to call attention to it. So I'll carry one of the carbines from our cargo, Hale continued as she walked over to the weapon cases. I've cleaned the top case and checked them for functioning when I was off watch. Hale must already have thrown the pair of levers locking the stack to the deck. She lifted down the top case, a hundred pounds or so between the weight of packaging and the ten carbines, Adele noted, and raised the lid. Hogg frowned, but he looked more startled than angry. Hale rose with a carbine in her left hand. Master Hogg," she said, I would appreciate it if you'd hand me a charger of ammunition for this. I put a carton in the arms locker. Yeah, Sure said Hogg in a mild voice. He put the extra pistol back in its drawer in the locker and, bending, fished two chargers from the box on the floor of the locker. The arms locker is normally locked, Hale, Daniel said. She stiffened to attention instead of taking the tubular magazines Hogg was holding out. Sir, she said eyes front, I was armory officer aboard the Kipling. Apparently, I failed to turn over my key. I'll give it to you at once. Delay that, Hale. Daniel said. He wasn't laughing, but the crinkling at the corners of his eyes suggested that he wasn't far from doing so. I think the key is in good hands. If you're ready, Hale, Vessie said. We'll be off to Beardsley and Owens. She glanced at Daniel and said, I'm starting with them. If I'm not satisfied with the quality, I'll work down my list of provisioning merchants. Carry on, Vessie, Daniel said. Hog, you and I will hike up to the manor, which is what passes for government house here while Officer Mundy and our principal make contact with the transformationist representative. Bessie and Hale, the latter with her carbine ported across her chest, had started across the floating extender. Daniel grinned to Adele and said, Hale is working out quite well, I would say. Ian Hogg set off. Adele looked at her companions. Her data unit had plotted a route to Master Graves' office. Brother Graves, as he went by here, but there would be psychological advantages to putting Cleveland in charge here on familiar ground. Guide us, please, Master Cleveland, Adele said, sliding her data unit away. Tovera lifted the lid of her attaché case slightly, and the familiar weight rode in the left pocket of Adele's tunic, just in case the pin on Cleveland's collar wasn't enough. Hogg waited for Daniel at the top of the levee, eyeing the town the ground beneath the tramway pylons was generally clear. Beyond that, instead of a broad esplanade for pedestrians and vehicles, there was an alley into which displays and seated loungers edged. Now that the crane had passed, some people were spilling into the tramway also. That was probably safe enough if you were sober. The crane couldn't move faster than a walk, even without a load. But Daniel didn't imagine the driver would bother to slow for someone sprawled between the pylons. The crane's clearance had looked to be about a foot, but the car it pulled moved on full width rollers to spread the load. Anyone under them would become a smear on the cracked concrete. We've been worse places, said Hogg, looking to right and left. They aren't short of bars and knocking shops anyway. Rather than find our way between the buildings, Daniel said, we'll walk to our right till we get to the avenue up to the government buildings. He wore dark blue utilities without markings, but his battered blue saucer hat had gold braid. Fine by me, Hogg said, adjusting the sling of his submachine gun so that it hung across his chest with a muzzle to the left. The barrel was horizontal and he kept his right hand on the grip. Daniel smiled as they walked along the harbor front. He kept to the tramway, but Hogg walked on his left and shifted his weapon to point at anyone who might be blocking his way. Hogg had the countryman's view of cities as dangerous places inhabited solely by crooks who would rob him or worse if they got a chance. That was an overstatement everywhere Daniel had been, even here in Brotherhood, a port and a mining town. Both places which collected people who did brutal work, which not infrequently brutalized them. Hogg and his submachine gun weren't so far out of the norm that they aroused comment, though. The buildings were low mostly two-story along the harbor, and one or two as you moved back from the water. The roofs were universally of corrugated plastic, fire-orange when installed, but easing through beige to cream after a few years of exposure. Most structures were walled with stabilized earth, sandwiched between sheets of tough white plastic. Where the sheathing had cracked, the black core showed like splotches of shadow. Frontages along the harbor had often been painted, but sunlight had faded primary colors into pastels, and pastels into shimmers on the plastic. A man shambled toward Daniel from the alley between two taverns. Hogg snarled a curse and angled the muzzle of his weapon. Please, the beggar said. His hair was a knotted gray cascade, and his features looked as though they had been dipped in acid. He retained all four limbs, but the muscles were shrunken over the bones. Bugger off! Hog snarled. The beggar dropped to his knees in the street, not quite in their path. Daniel stepped deeper into the tramway and drew Hogg with him by touching his shoulder. Please, the beggar whispered as they passed. They didn't look back. We didn't make them that way, Hogg said. Daniel did not reply. At the base of the Central Avenue was a flagpole. The banner dropped in the still air. All Daniel could see was that it included blue and white stripes. Parked there was a wheeled armored car, which looked like a civilian panel truck with a new body of steel ceramic sandwich and an ungraded suspension. The automatic impeller on a ring mount accessed through the cab did not have a gun shield. The vehicle had been painted dark gray, but the original legend on the sides was now covered with a white rectangle and the words, Army of Corsera. Whoever held the stencil had let it slip midway in the spraying process. A platoon of troops in gray battle dress lounged around the car and on the harbor front. Their original patches had been removed. Most, but not all, now bore in their place lengths of white ribbon embroidered with Army of Corsera in black. They paid no more attention to Daniel and Hogg than the civilians had. That truck wouldn't stop a slug, Hogg muttered as they started up the slope. Wouldn't even slow it down. Well, maybe this pop gun, he patted the machine gun's receiver. But not a real impeller. I'm surprised they bother with vehicles here, Daniel said. It'll brush buildings even on the waterfront, and it certainly can't maneuver in the city proper. The central avenue was 30 feet wide and paved with crushed rock in a plastic matrix. The result was ugly, but even worn it would provide secure footing in the rain. Narrow streets led off to either side and meandered up the slope. They ranged from what Daniel would call alleys to mere walkways which separated the backs of houses. Most dwellings had gardens walled either with fieldstone or with panels of structural sandwich like the sides of the houses. The dark green foliage of bushes or small trees overhung the walls, and occasionally Daniel could glimpse bright flowers through the slats of latticed gates. They grow things here, Hogg said. There was a hint of approval in his tone, though nothing a stranger would have heard. You don't often see that in a city. There's money in brotherhood, Daniel said. For the people who supply the mines, and the miners who've made their piles at least, they ship a lot of copper. From orbit, he had noted a dozen freighters of roughly the Kaisha's size in harbor. The war might have reduced trade to Corsera, but there was enough profit to be made to justify the risk in the mind of many captains. They had reached a flight of 12 full-width steps midway to the top of the avenue. Daniel turned to look back the way they'd come. He could see the kaisha. Corey had raised the base section of the dorsal A antenna. A spacer, probably sun, sat in the cross trees with a sailcloth bundle the length of a stocked impeller. At the east end of the harbor front was the garrison's anti-ship missile battery. The launcher was lowered beneath the revetment, but two gray-uniformed personnel sat on chairs in the offset opening. Daniel looked left. He couldn't see the regiment's battery past the building roofs, but the destroyer Freccia floated midway down. She looked slender to Daniel. Pantalarian ships had a reputation in the RCN for being flimsy, though nobody denied they were fast. She mounted seven 10-centimeter plasma cannon in three turrets, The two dorsal twin units were raised to provide more internal space in harbor, and the triple ventral turret would be underwater. Daniel scowled. Mounting plasma cannon in threes was the sort of flashy nonsense you expected from Pantalarians. It slowed aiming, reduced reliability, and it made it much more difficult to clear stoppages. Eh? said Hogg, noting Daniel's expression. What's wrong? Nothing, Hogg. Daniel said, grinning broadly. But if I were in charge of the Pantellerian Navy, heads would be rolling in the design bureau. They continued up the avenue. Hogs seemed to relax as they rose farther from the coarse congestion of the harbor front. The shops and restaurants facing the avenue or the streets immediately off it catered to a less brutal clientele. Daniel continued to smile. Hogg fit in better with the dives near the water, but it would take him a few days to become acclimated to the Corseran environment, the way he had to the strip outside Harbor 3 on Cinnabar. Daniel glanced back from a higher level. A pair of warehouses had been converted to barracks across the tramway from where the Fretcher was docked. A watchtower had been erected at the back of one. Daniel didn't see heavy weapons there, but they could have been hidden by the roof. Two men in light blue pantalarian naval utilities leaned against the railing, occasionally viewing the town and harbor through optical devices. On their showing, the Navy was somewhat more alert than the platoon of the garrison at the base of the avenue. At the top of the avenue was the 300-foot plaza fronting the manor. A retaining wall supported the near end, but the fill must have shifted over time. The flagstones there lay irregularly and now sloped toward the harbor. There were 30 or 40 people on the plaza, including a juggler, several prostitutes, and a drunk face down in his vomit. Hogg barely scanned them before he raised his head to take in the manor itself. Where the bloody hell did that drop from, he said. He sounded delighted. The four-story manor had brick walls and projecting towers of light gray stone. The corner towers were round with conical roofs, while the two attached to the frontage were half octagonal and battlemented on top. It looked like no other building Daniel had seen in Brotherhood, or anywhere else for that matter. Because of the distance the manor was set back from the edge of the river, only its gambrel roof had been visible from the harbor. Adele says it's the oldest building here, Daniel said. It's been both government headquarters and a working hotel for several hundred years but it's been here longer than that. There's no record of who built it originally or why they built it. They started toward the arched entrance. This is like being back in the woods, Daniel said, as he hopped from one tilted block to another. They're not covered with wet leaves, though, said Hogg. Two prostitutes moved to intercept them. They weren't impressive at a distance, and a closer approach didn't improve their appearance. Daniel slanted slightly to his right, That would take him past the women, who seemed barely able to hobble. Hog waved and called, maybe later, girls. Really, Daniel said, frowning. Maybe if it's dark enough, Hog muttered, and I'm drunk enough, which has happened a time or two, young master. He grimaced and added without meeting Daniel's eyes. Look, I feel sorry for him, okay? Some of them wasn't half bad girls in their day. Right, said Daniel. He thought about the beggar on the harbor front, but he said nothing further aloud. In front of the manor was an oval ornamental pool, thirty feet long and ten feet across at the center. A pair of prisoners, leg shackled together, shuffled toward the pool with a handbarrow. Daniel skirted the other end, wondering if it had at one time been planted with water flowers. To his amazement, the prisoners tipped their barrows' contents of kitchen waste into the water. Potato peelings, grease, and unidentifiable bits swirled on the surface. What did you just do, you scuts, Daniel shouted. The nearer prisoner was a hulking brute who outweighed him by a hundred pounds. But Daniel was so angry at the sudden vandalism that he would have done the same thing even without Hogg standing close by with the submachine gun. Bugger off, said the smaller man at the back of the barrow. He was hunched. His pointy face had the features of an unhealthy rat. I'm working off my sentence, the big man said. He smiled shyly. They says I killed a man. Daniel blinked, as much at the pleasant expression as at the words. Did you, he said, kill him? Dunno, said the big man. I was drunk. I guess maybe I did. But why dump garbage here, Daniel said, disarmed by the prisoner's obvious good nature. Bugger off, the other prisoner repeated. Kelsey, we gotta get back. Higgins, you learn some manners or I pull your head off, Kelsey said. He didn't sound exactly angry, but there was a burr in his voice that hadn't been there before. All they gonna do when we get back is lock us back to that anchor chain in the basement. I'd rather talk to this gentleman. Higgins turned his head away. Kelsey watched him sternly for a moment, then smiled again to Daniel and said, The sponge here eats the food, you see. There it goes. Daniel looked down. The water had been still. Now the surface was in trembling motion as a current drew the scraps along one curved side of the pool. Somebody turned the filter on, he thought. Then he saw a tentacle, the thickness of his arm, covered with writhing cilia, which were drawing the water toward them. Daniel shaded his eyes to look below the surface. Directly beneath him was a grating, which normally would have covered a filter and pump. Something pinkish gray and as big as a steer's torso grew on it, concealing most of the grate. There were four tentacles like the one he had seen, all shimmering with cilia. You say it's a sponge, he said, kneeling to get closer. Over the striped body crawled flat bronze creatures the size of a man's thumb. They could have been blotches of color on the hide had Daniel not seen that they were moving slowly. Don't you fall in, sir, Kelsey warned. It'll eat you quick as it'll eat a rat. He knuckled his bearded chin. And I always heard it was a sponge, but I don't know. I'm not well. I ain't got much schooling, you know. I saw it eat a drunk last year, Higgins said. He screamed like you wouldn't believe. Wouldn't have done no good to pull him out, because once it stings you, it's all over. So I've been told anyhow. Thank you, Kelsey. Daniel said, straightening He fished a florin out of his purse Then thought a moment and found a second coin And you too, Higgins He flipped the coins to the prisoners One and then the other Come hog, Daniel said We have business with the port authorities But as soon as we get back to Keisha, he thought I'll have Adele learn more about this sponge It was the most interesting thing Daniel had seen on Corsira yet
1: That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz
2: and a troop of Irish-dancing red-eyed Nephilim inhabiting the whirligig bodies of menacing plush toys and clogging to the music of imperial hubris. Yikes. A special Jow Bitmoji depicting that species as the absolute cutest planetary conquerors of all time, and thanks, praise and gratitude to Eric Flint and David Carrico, co-authors of The Span of Empire.
1: Please join us next time, here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.